Charity and its Fruits by Jonathan Edwards The spirit of charity is the opposite of a selfish spirit. Charity seeketh not her own, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Having shown the nature of charity in respect to the good of others, in the two particulars, that it is kind to them and envies not their enjoyments and blessings, and also in respect to our own good, that it is not proud either in spirit or behavior. I pass to the next point presented by the Apostle, namely, that charity seeks not her own. The doctrine of these words plainly is that the spirit of charity, or Christian love, is the opposite of a selfish spirit. The ruin that the fall brought upon the soul of man consists very much in his losing the nobler and more benevolent principles of his nature, and falling wholly under the power and government of self-love. Before, and as God created him, he was exalted and noble and generous, but now he is debased and ignoble and selfish. Immediately upon the fall, the mind of man shrank from its primitive greatness and expandedness to an exceeding smallness and contractedness. And as in other respects, so especially in this, before, his soul was under the government of that noble principle of divine love, in which it was enlarged to the comprehension of all of its fellow creatures and their welfare. And not only so, but it was not confined within such narrow limits as the bounds of the creation, but went forth in the exercise of holy love to the Creator, and abroad upon the infinite ocean of good, and was, as it were, swallowed up by it, and became one with it. But so soon as he had transgressed against God, these noble principles were immediately lost, and all this excellent enlargedness of man's soul was gone. And from that time he himself shrank, as it were, into a little space, circumscribed and closely shut up within itself to the exclusion of all things else. Sin, like some powerful astringent, contracted its soul to the very small dimensions of selfishness. And God was forsaken and fellow creatures forsaken. And man retired within himself and became totally governed by narrow and selfish principles and feelings. Self-love became absolute master of his soul, and the more noble and spiritual principles of his being took wings and flew away. But God, in mercy to miserable man, entered on the work of redemption, and by the glorious gospel of his Son began the work of bringing the soul of man out of its confinement and contractedness, and back again to those noble and divine principles by which it was animated and governed at first. And it is through the cross of Christ that he is doing this, for our union with Christ gives us participation in his nature. And so Christianity restores an excellent enlargement and extensiveness and liberality to the soul, and again possesses it with that divine love or charity that we read of in the text, in which it again embraces his fellow creatures, and is devoted to and swallowed up in the Creator. And thus charity which is the sum of the Christian spirit, so partakes of the glorious fullness of the divine nature that she seeks not her own, or is contrary to a selfish spirit. In dwelling on this thought, I would first show the nature of that selfishness of which charity is the opposite, then how charity is opposed to it, and then some of the evidence in support of the doctrine stated. 
In the first place, I would show the nature of that selfishness, of which charity is the opposite. And here I would observe negatively that charity, or the spirit of Christian love, is not contrary to all self-love. It is not a thing contrary to Christianity that a man should love himself, or which is the same thing, should love his own happiness. If Christianity did indeed tend to destroy man's love to himself and to his own happiness, it would therein tend to destroy the very spirit of humanity. But the very announcement of the gospel is a system of peace on earth. A goodwill toward men, Luke 2, verse 14, shows that it is not only not destructive of humanity, but in the highest degree promotive of its spirit. That a man should love his own happiness is as necessary to his nature as a faculty of the will is, and it is impossible that such a love should be destroyed in any other way than by destroying his being. The saints love their own happiness, yea, those that are perfect in happiness, the saints and angels in heaven love their own happiness. Otherwise, that happiness which God has given them would be no happiness to them. For that which anyone does not love, he cannot enjoy any happiness in. That to love ourselves is not unlawful is evident also from the fact that the law of God makes self-love a rule and measure by which our love to others should be regulated. Thus Christ commands in Matthew 19, verse 19, You shall love your neighbor as yourself, which certainly supposes that we may and must love ourselves. It is not said more than yourself, but as yourself. But we are commanded to love our neighbor next to God, and therefore we are to love ourselves with a love next to that which we should exercise toward God himself. And the same appears also from the fact that the scriptures, from one end of the Bible to the other, are full of motives. They are set forth for the very purpose of working on the principle of self-love. Such are all the promises and threatenings of the Word of God, its calls and invitations, its counsels to seek our own good, and its warnings to beware of misery. These things can have no influence on us in any other way than as they tend to work upon our hopes or fears. For to what purpose would it be to make any promise of happiness or hold forth any threatening of misery to him that has no love for the former or dread of the latter? Or what reason can there be in counseling him to seek the one or warning him to avoid the other? So it is plain negatively that charity or the spirit of Christian love is not contrary to all self-love. But I remark still further, affirmatively, that the selfishness which charity or a Christian spirit is contrary to is only an inordinate self-love. Here, however, the question arises, and what does this inordinateness consist? This is a point that needs to be well stated and clearly settled. For the refutation of many scruples and doubts a persons often have depends upon it. And therefore I answer first, that the inordinateness of self-love does not consist in our love of our own happiness, being absolutely considered to great in degree. I do not suppose it can be said of any that their love to their own happiness, if we consider that love absolutely and not comparatively, can be in too high a degree, or that it is a thing that is liable either to increase or diminution. 
For I apprehend that self-love in this sense is not a result of the fall, but is necessary in what belongs to the nature of all intelligent beings, and that God has made it alike in all, and that saints and sinners and all alike love happiness, and have the same unalterable instinctive inclination to desire and seek it. The change that takes place in a man when he is converted and sanctified is not that his love for happiness is diminished, but only that it is regulated with respect to its exercises and influence, and the course and objects it leads to. Who will say that the happy souls in heaven do not love happiness as truly as the miserable spirits in hell? If their love of happiness is diminished by their being made holy, then that will diminish their happiness itself. For the less anyone loves happiness, the less he relishes it, and consequently is the less happy. When God brings a soul out of a miserable state and condition into a happy state by conversion, he gives him happiness that before he did not have. But he does not at the same time take away any of his love of happiness. And so when a saint increases in grace, he is made still more happy than he was before. But his love of happiness and his relish of it does not grow less as his happiness itself increases. For that would be to increase his happiness one way and to diminish it another. But in every case in which God makes a miserable soul happy, or a happy soul still more happy, he continues the same love of happiness that existed before. And so doubtless the saints ought to have as much of a principle of love to their own happiness or love to themselves, which is the same thing as the wicked have. So that if we consider men's love of themselves or of their own happiness absolutely, it is plain that the inordinateness of self-love does not consist in its being in too great a degree, because it is alike in all. But I remark secondly that the inordinateness of self-love in which a corrupt selfishness consists lies in two things, in its being too great, comparatively and in placing our happiness in that which is confined to self. In the first place, the degree of self-love may be too great comparatively, and so the degree of its influence be inordinate, though the degree of men's love of their own happiness taken absolutely may in all be the same, yet the proportion that their love of self bears to their love for others may not be the same. If we compare a man's love of himself with his love for others, it may be said that he loves himself too much, that is, in proportion, too much. And though this may be owing to a defect of love to others, rather to an excess of love to himself, yet self-love by this excess and its proportion itself becomes inordinate in this respect, namely, that it becomes inordinate in its influence and in government of the man. For though the principle of self-love in itself considered is not at all greater than if there is a due proportion of love to God and to fellow creatures with it, yet the proportion being greater, its influence and government of the man become greater, and so its influence becomes inordinate by reason of the weakness or absence of other love that should restrain or regulate that influence. To illustrate this, we may suppose the case of a servant in a family who was formerly kept in the place of a servant, and whose influence in family affairs was not inordinate, while his master's strength was greater than his. And yet, if afterward the master grows weaker and loses his strength, and the rest of the family lose their former power, 
Though the servant's strength be not at all increased, yet the proportion of his strength being increased, his influence may become inordinate, and from being in subjection and a servant, he may become a master in that house. And so self-love becomes inordinate. Before the fall, man loved himself for his own happiness as much as after the fall. But then a superior principle of divine love had the throne, and was of such strength that it wholly regulated and directed self-love. But, since the fall of man, the principle of divine love has lost its strength, or rather is dead, so that self-love, continuing in its former strength and having no superior principle to regulate it, becomes inordinate in its influence and governs where it should be subject and only a servant. Self-love, then, may become inordinate in its influence by being comparatively too great, either by love to God and a fellow creature's being too small, as it is in the saints who in this world of great remaining corruption, or by its being none at all, as is the case with those who have no divine love in their hearts. Thus, the inordinateness of self-love with respect to the degree of it is not as it is considered absolutely, but comparatively, or with respect to the degree of its influence. In some respects, wicked men do not love themselves enough, not so much as the godly do, for they do not love the way of their own welfare and happiness, and in this sense it is sometimes said of the wicked that they hate themselves, though in another sense they love self too much. It is further true in the second place that self-love for a man's love to his own happiness may be inordinate in placing that happiness in things that are confined to himself. In this case, the error is not so much in the degree of his love to himself as it is in a channel in which it flows. It is not in the degree in which he loves his own happiness, but in his placing his happiness where he ought not, and in limiting and confining his love. Some, although they love their own happiness, do not place that happiness in their own confined good, or in that good which is limited to themselves, but more in the common good, in that which is the good of others, or in the good to be enjoyed in and by others. A man's love of his own happiness, when it runs in this last channel, is not what is called selfishness, but it's a very opposite of it. But there are others who, in their love to their own happiness, place that happiness in good things that are confined or limited to themselves, to the exclusion of others. And it's a selfishness. This is the thing most clearly and directly intended by that self-love which the scripture condemns. And when it is said that charity seeks not her own, we are to understand it of her own private good, good limited to herself. The expression, her own, is a phrase of appropriation and properly carries in its signification the idea of limitation of self. And so the like phrase in Philippians 2 verse 21, that all seek their own, carries the idea of confined and self-appropriated good, or the good that a man is singly and to himself, and in which he has no communion or partnership with another but which he is so circumscribed and limited to himself is to exclude others. And so the expression is to be understood in Second Timothy 3, verse 2. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. 
For the phrase is of the most confined signification, limited to self alone, and excluding all others. A man may love himself as much as one can, and may be, in the exercise of a high degree of love to his own happiness, ceaselessly longing for it. And he may yet so place that happiness that in the very act of seeking it, he may be in the high exercise of love to God. As for example, when the happiness that he longs for is to enjoy God, or to behold his glory, or to hold communion with him. Or a man may place his happiness in glorifying God. It may seem to him the greatest happiness that he can conceive of, to give God glory, as he may do. And he may long for this happiness. And in longing for it, he loves that which he looks on as his happiness. For if he did not love what in this case he esteemed as happiness, he would not long for it. And to love his happiness is to love himself. And yet in the same act he loves God because he places his happiness in God. For nothing can more properly be called love to any being or thing than to place our happiness in it. And so persons may place our happiness considerably in the good of others, their neighbors for instance, in desiring the happiness that consists in seeking their good, they may in seeking it love themselves and their own happiness. And yet this is not selfishness because it is not a confined self-love. But the individual self-love flows out in such a channel as to take in others with himself. The self that he loves is, as it were, enlarged and multiplied, so that in the very acts in which he loves himself, he loves others also. And this is a Christian spirit, the excellent and noble spirit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the nature of that divine love or Christian charity that is spoken of in the text. And a Christian spirit is contrary to that selfish spirit which consists in the self-love that goes after such objects as are confined and limited, such as a man's worldly wealth, or the honor that consists in a man's being set up higher in the world than his neighbors, or his own worldly ease and convenience, or his pleasing and gratifying his own bodily appetites and lusts. Having thus stated what that selfishness is that a Christian spirit is contrary to, I pass as proposed to show, secondly, how the spirit of charity, or Christian love, is contrary to such a spirit. And this may be shown in these two particulars, that the spirit of charity, or Christian love, leads us to seek not only our own things, but those of others, and that it disposes us, in many cases, to forgo or part with our own things, for the sake of others. The spirit of charity or love leads those who possess it to seek not only their own things, but the things of others. First, such a spirit seeks to please and glorify God. The things that are well-pleasing to God in Christ and attend to the divine glory are called the things of Christ. In opposition to our own things, as where it is said in Philippians 2, verse 21, all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. Christianity requires that we should make God and Christ our main end, and all Christians, so far as they live like Christians, live so that for them to live is Christ. Christians are required to live so as to please God, and so as to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, Romans 12, 2. We should be such servants of Christ as do in all things seek to please our Master, as the Apostle says in Ephesians 6, verse 6, not with eye service as men pleasers, 
but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And so we are required in all things, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, whether we eat, drink, or whatsoever we do, to do all to the glory of God. This surely is a spirit which is the opposite of self-seeking. Secondly, they that have the spirit of charity, or Christian love, have a spirit to seek the good of their fellow creatures. Thus the apostle commands in Philippians 2 verse 4, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. We ought to seek the spiritual good of others, and if we have a Christian spirit, we shall desire and seek their spiritual welfare and happiness, their salvation from hell, and that they may glorify and enjoy God forever. And the same spirit will dispose us to desire and seek the temporal prosperity of others. It says the Apostle 1 Corinthians 10 verse 24, Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. And we should so seek their pleasure that therein we can at the same time seek their profit. As again it is said by the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 33, Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. And again in Romans 15 verse 2, Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good, to edification. But more particularly, under this head, I would remark, did a spirit of charity, or Christian love, is exercised toward our fellow creatures as opposite to a selfish spirit, as it is a sympathizing and merciful spirit. It disposes persons to consider not only their own difficulties, but also the burdens and afflictions of others, and the difficulties of their circumstances, and to esteem the case of those who are in straits and necessities as their own. A person of a selfish spirit is ready to make much of the afflictions that he himself is under, as if his privations or sufferings were greater than those of anybody else. And if he is not in suffering, he is ready to think he is not called to spare what he has in possession for the sake of helping others. A selfish man is not apt to discern the wants of others, but rather to overlook them, and can hardly be persuaded to see or feel them. But a man of a charitable spirit is apt to see the afflictions of others, and to take notice of their aggravation, and to be filled with concern for them as he would be for himself, if under difficulties, and he is ready also to help them and take delight in supplying their necessities and relieving their difficulties. He rejoices to obey that injunction of the Apostle in Colossians 3 verse 12. Put on, therefore, is the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, and to cherish the spirit of wisdom that is from above, which is full of mercy, and a good man spoken of by the psalmist, Psalm 37:26, to be merciful, that is, full of mercy. And as it is a sympathizing and a merciful spirit, so the spirit of charity is exercised toward our fellow creatures, is the opposite of a selfish spirit, inasmuch as it is a liberal spirit. It not only seeks the good of others, dead or in affliction, but it is ready to communicate to all and forward to promote their good, as there may be opportunity to do good and to communicate. It does not forget, Hebrews 13, verse 16, but obeys the exhortation, Galatians 6, 10, as we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, 
But on this point I need not enlarge, having already dwelt upon it at length, and the lecture on charity is kind. And it's the spirit of charity, or Christian love is opposed to a selfish spirit, and that it is merciful and liberal. So it is in this also that it disposes a person to be public-spirited. A man of a right spirit is not a man of narrow and private views, but is greatly interested and concerned for the good of the community to which he belongs, and particularly of the city or village in which he resides, and for the true welfare of the society of which he is a member. God commanded the Jews that were carried away captive to Babylon to seek the good of that city, though it's not their native place, but only the city of their captivity. His injunction was in Jeremiah 29, 7, Seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captives and pray to the Lord for it. And a man of truly Christian spirit will be earnest for the good of his country and of the place of his residence and will be disposed to lay himself out for its improvement. A man who is recommended to Christ by the Jews, Luke 7, 5, is one that loved their nation and had built them a synagogue and it is spoken of as a very provoking thing to God with respect to some in Israel in Amos 6, verse 6, that they were not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. And it is recorded to the everlasting honor of Esther, Esther 4, verse 16, that she herself fasted and prayed and stirred up others to fast and pray for the welfare of her people. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, 1-3 expresses the deepest concern for the welfare of his countrymen, and those that are possessed of the spirit of Christian charity are of a more enlarged spirit still, for they are concerned not only for the thrift of the community, but the welfare of the church of God, and of all the people of God individually. As such a spirit was Moses, the man of God, and therefore he earnestly interceded for God's visible people and declared himself ready to die that they might be spared. Exodus 32 verses 11 and 32. And of such a spirit was Paul, who was so concerned for the welfare of all, both Jews and Gentiles, that he was willing to become as they were, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. If possible, he might save some of them. Especially will the spirit of Christian love dispose those who stand in public capacity, such as that of pastors and magistrates, and all public officers to seek the public good. It will dispose magistrates to act as the fathers of the commonwealth, with that care and concern for the public good which the father of a family has for his household. It will make them watchful against public dangers and forward to use their powers for the promotion of the public benefit, not being governed by selfish motives in their administration, not seeking only or mainly to enrich themselves or to become great and to advance themselves on the spoils of others, as wicked rulers very often do, by striving to act for the true welfare of all to whom their authority extends. And the same spirit will dispose ministers not to seek their own, and endeavor to get all they can out of their people to enrich themselves and their families, but to seek the good of the flock over which the great shepherd has placed them, to feed and watch over them, and lead them to good pastures, and to defend them from wolves and wild beasts that would devour them. And so whatever the post of honor or influence we may be placed in, we should show that in it we are solicitous for the good of the public, so that the world may be better for our living in it. 
and that when we are gone it may be said of us that it was nobly said of David in Acts 13 verse 36 that we served our generation by the will of God. But the spirit of charity or love also disposes us in many cases to forego and part with our own things for the sake of others. It disposes us to part with our own private temporal interest and totally and freely to renounce it for the sake of the honor of God and the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. Such was the spirit of the Apostle Paul when he exclaimed in Acts 21 verse 13, I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And the same spirit will dispose us often to forego or part with our own private interest for the good of our neighbors. It will make us ready on every occasion to aid or help them, leading us willingly to part with a lesser good of our own for the sake of a greater good to them. And the case may even be such in 1 John 3 verse 16 that we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But I will not dwell longer on this point now. <laughs>